Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Find a Way to Care, the title track from John Mayall's 64th official album and the most recent release from the 81-year-old singer, keyboardist, guitarist, harmonica player, and composer who's been dubbed the godfather of British blues. The Grammy-nominated Mayall is a renowned band leader, with several veterans of his group, the Blues Breakers, going on to find notoriety in their own right. A short list of those who've passed through his band includes Eric Clapton and Jack Bruce, who went on to form Cream, Peter Green, John McVie, and Mick Fleetwood, who later formed Fleetwood Mac, Andy Frazier, who formed Free, and Mick Taylor, who went on to join the Rolling Stones. Other notable guitarists who've passed through Mayall's band include Walter Trout, Coco Montoya, Sonny Landreth, Buddy Whittington, and former Canned Heat member Harvey Mandel. Between 1966 and 1971, Mayall released 11 albums that hit the top 40 on the UK album chart, three of which also reached the top 40 on the Billboard chart in the US. Though he has covered songs by many of his heroes, Mayall's albums have relied primarily on original material. His own compositions have been recorded by a range of artists including Richie Havens, Georgie Fame, Them, Mott the Hoople, Dion and the Belmonts, Motorhead, Joe Bonamassa, Albert King, Eric Clapton, Uriah Heep, and the duo of Eric Burden and Jimmy Witherspoon. Mayall's album Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton appears on Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, and he was named an Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire by the Queen of England in 2005. B.B. King once said, John Mayall, he was the master of it. If it wasn't for the British musicians, a lot of us black musicians in America would still be catching the hell that we caught long before. So, Scott, before we did this interview, what context did the name John Mayall carry for you? Um... Well, the first box set that I can ever remember getting when I was a kid was the Eric Clapton Crossroads set that kind of was a big overview of his entire career. In fact, this was back far enough that it was a cassette box set, if I remember right. And, um, of course, as a kid learning about music, I knew about Cream, I knew about Eric Clapton's solo stuff, but I started listening to this music and I saw that quite a few of the early recordings were uh, done with some band named John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Hmm. And um, that's the first time I remember hearing that name. And and like a lot of people, I think they kind of come to John Mayall um, precisely because he had a lot of these big name people pass through his band. That's where they first right. become aware of him. Yeah. Mick Taylor, uh, Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac. I mean, right. Yeah. I th- mean, it's like a who's who of, of, of classic rock yeah, artists. I mean, clearly Mayall was really well respected by a group of musicians that we now consider icons. Um, and I kind of jokingly have referred to him since the interview as the like the Tommy Dorsey of, <laughs> of blues music um, yeah. for being such an influential band leader. But even more than that, I mean, he was a songwriter. Yeah, it's weird to think about um, that all the guys in the Rolling Stones or the guys in the Animals or the guys who were in the Who, these at one point were young teenagers all hanging out at the same club in London 
all devouring these blues records from the U.S. that, yeah. frankly, uh, most American kids their age didn't care about and right. didn't even know existed. And you had this community of probably only like 100 people in London who were just absorbing this blues stuff and then brought it back to the U.S. in the form of the British invasion, which yeah. impacted rock music in a way that, you know, is still we're feeling to this day. Um, and John Mayall was one of those guys who was right there at the heart of that scene. And he was a little older than some of those guys. So he was even kind of a, kind of a mentor yeah. and, and a leader in that scene. So even for people who are casual music fans, you know, they know the name Eric Clapton. Right. They might not know the name John Mayall, um, but he is an important guy to know because he's one of the driving forces that that introduced the world to somebody like Eric Clapton, yeah. uh, to, to some of these artists who were part of that British invasion. Well, I don't think it's too much to say that the movement that John Mayall was a part of and part of spearheading really changed the world and yeah. changed the music world. There was a real significance to that chapter. And there was a real significance to John Mayall's entry into the songcraft world and that he was the first British guest that we've had. That's true. I, you know, there's something about people who speak with a British accent. They make me, they, I just feel kind of dumb. Around there's an them. authority <laughs> that comes with it. <laughs> That's true. He definitely has a, a, a weight of, of just his words. And I kind of think I better pay attention right. to this guy. Right. Yeah. He's got some wisdom. Well, let's listen to it now. Absolutely. Here's our conversation with the great John Mayall. You know, you've been incredibly prolific, releasing more than five dozen studio and live albums since the mid-1960s. But before we go back to the start of it all, I want to ask you about your most recent release, Find a Way to Care. Four of the songs are original compositions, including Ain't No Guarantees and Long Summer Days. After all this time, where do you find your inspiration for new song ideas? I don't know. It's pretty hard sometimes. You know, I think sometimes I've said about all I can about what's going on. <laughs> but then, you know, a subject matter will come up and then I'll go, OK, well, that'll be good enough to, to write something about. And, uh, you know, it just once I get the subject matter in my head, you know, it's fairly easy to kind of uh, fit it to music. And, uh, and that's how it all starts. Yeah. Does that tend to come like from from reading or watching television or where do you tend to get a lot of your ideas? I guess, I guess from all sources, really. There's no specific rule about it. Um, you know, it just depends on the subject matter. Obviously, something that's going to be politically inclined or something about the environment, obviously, that comes from, uh, you know, the, the media. And, uh, and, you know, that's all it takes, really, to get things started. But other things are of a more personal nature, observations about my life so far and uh, anything else I want to say. I remember hearing someone say once that if you want to keep writing about life, you have to continue to have a life. Well, I say absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the title track, uh, Find a Way to Care, you talk about a time before the world seemed so crazy and fast-paced, and you write, uh, we didn't worry quite as much, life didn't feel like such a rush. I remember how it used to be for the world's in a crazy spree We didn't worry quite as much Life didn't feel like such a rush So I ain't going anywhere I'm gonna try to be aware Times are changing round us We gotta do the best 
you know, a lot of blues music isn't necessarily message-oriented, so to speak, but you have, have often tried to address societal concerns with your music. What's the story behind that song? Uh, just a general observation about, you know, there's all this terrorist stuff going on and all this, all these religious uh, maniacs out there um, that, that seem to be the root of a, of a lot of things. Religion seems to be the basic uh, force behind all these extremists. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can't pick up a paper, paper without uh, reading about some, some somebody's being massacred. Right their beliefs so it's it's pretty pretty general and every every day you pick up the paper and there's something horrendous going on on the other side of it i'm so glad we live in america yeah yeah Yeah. you know you've you've lived through a number of kind of tumultuous eras would you consider this one to be specifically crazy or how, how do you compare it to the 60s the 70s I think this is a more a more dangerous thing. You know, nobody seems to have any any way of controlling it. I mean, I mean, it's a different culture, and 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 people trying to impose one culture upon another. Um, you're pretty powerless, really. Yeah. Um, things seem to be a lot simpler in the, the old days. Differences could be more easily resolved. I think. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, back to that new CD, the last song on the new album is Crazy Lady. Once I had a woman in 1972 Couldn't believe the trouble that that woman put me through Crazy days What was I thinking way back then? She was one crazy lady Talking about that old girlfriend. I have to ask you, is that autobiographical? Oh yeah, everything <laughs> that I write has got to be autobiographical. Yeah, you know, it was you know when there was uh, one particular lady I couldn't quite get rid of, and uh, <laughs> you know, I guess that we've all been in that situation at some point. <laughs> so it, it just seemed like a funny, a funny take, of an observation on a, a failed relationship that wouldn't go away. <laughs> Right. Do you think she'll know when she hears it that it's about her? No, she's dead now. Oh, well, that makes it okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's quite a long time ago, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, the the interesting thing to me about Crazy Lady is that it's it's just you and a piano and is recorded as this kind of old-style boogie-woogie blues. And you, of course, are known for, for playing harmonica and guitar and, and piano, um, but this album particularly kind of highlights your keyboard work. Um, how did you first start playing piano, and who were your earliest influences? Well, for, for the first part, very laboriously to start, because... Uh, at home, we didn't have a piano, so huh. it, it automatically meant that if I wanted to play a piano, uh, it started off there was one available at junior art school where I went when I was 14. Right. So I was able to potter about on that one a bit, and then nearer to home, uh, any, any friends of mine who had a piano, I would go and torture them for a while <laughs> until they couldn't take <laughs> any more and kick me out. But, uh, right. you know, it's very difficult at first, but, you know, I've never learned to read or write music. So uh, to this day, uh, my my keyboard work is very um, uh, very different from anybody else's because of the limitations that I have technically. Mm. So it's all about emotion and uh, 
and the power that I can put into that. Yeah, right. yeah. And, and I understand that your father had a, a fairly impressive record collection that was influential on you early on. Yeah, he had a case full of, uh, of, of 78s, which were mainly jazz, jazz stuff, because, you know, he, he had a guitar and he played uh, in dance bands in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess they were all... Uh, more jazzy than, than anything that I went into. He didn't really get into blues stuff, although there were blues elements in the work of uh, Eddie Lang duets with uh, Lonnie Johnson, sure. which was quite uh, quite a, you know a, a landmark thing for black and white musicians to play together and record together yeah. in the twenties. But uh, right. um, I think I think uh, you know I veered off on my own. Really, that was I used that as a starting point, and then, like I said, when I went to uh, listen to uh, Boogie Woogie Piano, that was that was, that was something that was totally my own. Hmm. So Albert Ammons and, and Pete Johnson were, were probably the starting point for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and eventually you you moved to London in your in your late twenties to pursue music. This was back in the in the early sixties, and most people credit guitarist Alexis Corner and harmonica player Cyril Davies and their band Blues Incorporated for kind of spearheading the electric blues movement in London. Um, tell us about the scene that you found there, and 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 who some of the young musicians were who began to kind of coalesce and begin to make up this community of budding British blues devotees at the time that you arrived there? Well, there's no question about, you know, Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis, uh, you know, being the founders, really. I mean, they were the the focal point, and uh, they started off, I guess, playing interval spots with the traditional jazz bands that were uh, were the popular thing for 10 years at that point. Right. And this is, you know, 1962, 63, or maybe a little earlier. But, you know, that's where the foundation of it was. And Chris Barber, uh, with his jazz band, he used to have a, um, a, a little section in the middle where he'd feature blues music. And he brought over to to London, he brought over Big Bill Bruins, the sister Rosetta Tharp, and, uh, you know, many other blues players who uh, were revered by the English public, but they'd never seen them firsthand. Right. So, you know, it was a small beginnings, but, you know, once uh, Alexis and Cyril got their uh, chance at a club where they could, you know, do whatever they wanted and on a special night... It it, uh, it was the turning point, and a lot of uh, young people, you know, came to to London from various parts of the country and uh, got the whole thing started. They were basically jam sessions, but you know, the foundations of the Rolling Stones were all involved in that. They all individually uh, came together through Alexis and Cyril, and um, you know, so I was one of the people who was in the north of England, and I thought, well, this is great because. Uh, this is the music that I've been playing, you know, for all my life. So yeah. this would be uh, a time for me to try and try my hand at, at playing uh, in London. And Alexis uh, was very encouraging, and he, he, he introduced me to uh, several musicians on the London scene, and I was built up from there, really. Yeah. Um, so it was a slow start, but the, the audience were just beginning. It was a new wave of of interest in this kind of music. So it was a very exciting time to be around. Yeah. 
Well, and then you and your own band, you had the opportunity to back some pretty amazing artists uh, like John Lee Hooker, T-Bone Walker, Sonny Boy Williamson when, when they were coming through those English club tours. Uh, I'd love to know what you learned about writing and performing from, from being around those guys. Um, I, I learned a lot about dynamics, I think. I mean, John Lee Hooker was the first one who'd come over to do an actual um, club tour. Hmm. Uh, up, uh, up to that point, they'd been uh, doing you know festival uh, concerts and things as part of a Lipman and Rao uh, blues packages. Right. But, you know, John Lee was the first one to come over and actually do a club tour, so we were picked to be his backing group. Right. So that's how that, that all started. And he was followed by uh, T-Bone Walker, and then I did sporadic gigs with uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, and um, and that was the way that worked. It was great to yeah. learn from these guys. You talk about um, about dynamics, you know, learning about dynamics from those guys. What what, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, the volume, really. I think all the bands are so enthused and so so new to the medium. You know, you're automatically playing as loud as you can. Hmm. And I think that uh, you know, playing with John Lee was the the first point in my career where I had to, you know, bring the volume down so that he could be heard because yeah. he wasn't uh, cranking it out, you know, so <laughs> right, right. even though he was playing electric guitar. Right. So uh, those, are the, those are the main things that I can remember learning most about, the dynamics. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, well, your uh, first single was an original song, Crawling Up a Hill, in 1964. And that song and your first album, which was a live recording, are a little bit more R&B influenced in addition to, to blues. Um, what were some of the non-blues influences that you were absorbing in that era? I really don't, don't recall what the influences would be. You know, you've got to realize that my record collection was from all sources. Uh, you know, it was, I had a large 78th collection of of not just blues but jazz records too so right. there was a, a lot of influences that came into play and and I guess in order to get a record deal you had to have something that was uh, considered uh, for want of a better word commercial yeah, in order right. for you to get a record deal so crawling up a hill was a, a, a statement of of where I was at and where I came down came down from Manchester to London to get started. Well, in 1965, your guitarist, Roger Dean, departed and was replaced by Eric Clapton, who had just left the Yardbirds. And at that time, you recorded your first single under the name John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, which was called I'm Your Witch Doctor, another one of your original songs. I'm your witch doctor, got the evil eye, got the power of the devil, I'm the conjured guy. I understand that song was produced by Jimmy Page, who would, of course, go on to superstardom with Led Zeppelin. How did you and Jimmy first connect with each other? Well, Jimmy, Jimmy was was a kind of a noted guitar player on the scene, on the club scene. And, you know, I, 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 I considered hiring him at one point, mm. I think, it's a long time ago now, but, 
he told me that he wasn't interested in doing any uh, joining any band to do road work because he was quite full enough with doing session work so okay. that suited his lifestyle at that time but you know one of the things that he was doing he, he was um, running immediate records and uh, as a producer for them and uh, so that's how that came about it was uh, a chance to do something with Eric and uh, you know that's the way it came about yeah yeah well, in 1966, you released your first studio album, Blues Breakers, with Eric Clapton, um, which featured the four-piece lineup of you, uh, Clapton on lead guitar, drummer Huey Flint, and bassist John McVie, who would, of course, go on to Fleetwood Mac fame. Um, and many of the songs on that record are covers of, of blues icons, such as Otis Rush or Freddie King, Mose Allison, Little Walter. But you also composed uh, four of the songs solo and wrote one song, Double Crossing Time, with Clapton. one of the first recorded songs credited, or in this case, co-credited to, to Eric Clapton. Um, talk about how you guys put that together. Well, it was just a, a blues that I, I wrote, which was um, inspired by the fact that Jack Bruce had left left us in the lurch <laughs> to join Man, Manfred Mann for a bit more money than I was able to pay. Right. And, you know, but he, the way he walked out on us was a, was a bit of a letdown, and Eric and I felt kind of uh, insulted or put out about it, right. and so that was the subject matter for that one. So we were we had to say our thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I love right. the fact that we, you know already now I can tell that we can trace your life story through these songs, basically. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's what blues uh, singers are supposed to do in the very first place: sing of their own experiences, because. Yeah. You know, you can't sing about other people's unless you have a parallel situation. Right. So I've always felt that uh, anything I've done up throughout my career has been a form of musical diary to reflect all the stories and incidents in my life. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton was a, a top 10 album in the UK. Um, but then, as Jack Bruce had done uh, prior when he departed, Eric himself departed and uh, joined forces with Jack Bruce to, to form Cream. Um, but that didn't slow you down. You you brought Peter Green in as lead guitarist and recorded the album A Hard Road, which came out in 1967 and was also a top 10 success. Um, this time, you wrote eight of the songs on the album, including the, the wonderful Leaping Christine, which really showcases your harmonica work. Thank you. 
do you tend to kind of add harmonica parts after your songs are written, or do you ever actually compose songs on the harmonica? Uh, so it's a hard question because it's. I think it usually comes in conjunction with the uh, the keyboards because that's my main instrument. Mm, yeah. Uh, although I'm better, seem to be better known for harmonica playing, but it, you know it varies in, in a lot of instances. But, but I would say that. Um, the foundation of it would be me playing uh, guitar or keyboards, you know, and then mm. uh, harmonica being a lead instrument right. that would come on top of it. Um, well, before 1967 was up, Peter Green departed, and then future Rolling Stones guitarist Mick Taylor, who was still a teenager at the time, he joined the band for the Crusade album, which was comprised of about half cover songs and about half originals, such as Stand Back Baby. <laughs> the band for a good while. Tell us how you discovered him. He had uh, sat in with us at the uh, outside of London show where Eric hadn't shown up um, and so he stepped in and wanted to, to help out so I was very amazed that he, he, he knew all the tunes wow. but then he disappeared for a, uh, a, a duration and uh, I didn't find him till later when I put an advert in the melody maker for uh, a new guitar player after mm. Peter Green left. Yeah, yeah. I already knew him, so I didn't have to do any auditioning or anything like that. Yeah. Which I seldom do anyway. Yeah. In fact, I don't do auditions. We, you you <laughs> well. seem to have a pretty good ear for talent, man, looking at the track record of these guys. Well, you know, it's just, uh, if you're a band leader and uh, you, you're playing your own music or interpretation of other people's music, you pretty much know what you uh, looking for and yeah. can recognize the right people. Yeah, yeah. But for me, it's a very easy process, although I don't have to do it very often uh, in the in the last few decades. Mm. People tend to forget that, uh, you know, the, the people that I've had in my bands uh, over the last, well, 30 years have been there in there at least 10 years apiece, you know. So right. yeah. it's just the early days when there was a fast turnover yeah. because it was so much going on in London at that time. Right, right. Well, speaking of a lot going on, 1967, you were one busy guy, and amazingly, you released yet another album that same year, a third album within within one year, um, which was The Blues Alone. And that's an interesting record, because you played all the instruments yourself, except for the drums. Uh, you wrote all the songs solo, uh, including No More Tears, which showcases your lead electric guitar work. Um, why was it important for you in that era to make a record where you essentially had sole control over every aspect of the creation and the execution of the finished product? Well, I always thought it was an interesting idea to, to double track and you had that facility available uh, to, you know, to, to multi-track things, yeah. put one on top of the other until you had the whole, the whole piece 
it was an opportunity for me to explore songwriting and also to, to play around with the different instruments and right. combinations of the same. Yeah. yeah, and I guess that whole multi-tracking thing was a, a fairly new deal at that time. Yes, yeah, so it was for me that I remember it that way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you, of course, returned to the Blues Breakers format in 1968 for the Bear Wires LP, which became your highest charting album in the UK. And really, it was your first album that kind of broke through in the US. Um, you wrote or co-wrote every song on the album and took the opportunity to kind of stretch beyond the straight blues form. Uh, the record opens with the more than 20-minute medley Bear Wires Suite, and it incorporates the then-novel sound of Mick Taylor's wah-wah pedal on the song No Reply, which the, the two of you wrote together. Um, but you also use horns uh, with more of kind of a jazz fusion approach on songs like She's Too Young. time were you looking to branch out beyond the typical blues structure or were you more looking to kind of introduce those experimental or psychedelic elements of that era into the blues format well it was just the incorporation of uh, more jazz oriented players uh, you know with um, with john heisman being the, the top uh, uk drummer at that or any time right um and using horn players you know so they were jazz uh, jazz people and uh, it was just that, that Mick Taylor probably was the only one in the band who, who came from a rock background and yeah. you know, the combination of uh, those elements uh, really appealed to me and uh, it was different different shades of blues with jazz influences. Well you followed that up with the Blues from Laurel Canyon album which was about your first experience in the US tell us a little bit about that album it was just it was a story about three weeks vacation so and hence, the, it was just a, a one continuous story of three weeks' adventures uh, in Los Angeles. Oh, really? Oh. So, you know, that's if you follow the, the threads of it, it's, uh, it's you know, getting on the plane to go to, to Los Angeles, right. uh, staying uh, initially at, at uh, Bob Height's house and meeting the guys in, the, in Count Heat. Um, and, you know, the adventures continued and then yeah. meeting with Frank Zappa and staying over at his place huh. and uh, just just going from place to place, absorbing the uh, the vibe and the, the things that were going on in L.A. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in what that must have felt like coming to the United States. I mean, listening to so much blues and jazz, I'm sure there was sort of an image you had in your mind of what America was. I mean, did it feel like some sort of musical promised land or... Um, did it seem like this? I mean, you talk about meeting Frank Zappa. That must have been interesting, too. Well, it certainly was um, the right environment for me. I mean, I couldn't believe that I was actually going to America mm. because that was the, the country that provided the source of all the music I'd ever listened to. Yeah. Um, so it was very, uh, very instant, my recognition of this was where I wanted to live. And, you know, within a year, I'd moved out here permanently. So, um, meeting Frank Zappa, I met him 
uh, when he was doing a tour in, in Europe and uh, we got to be good friends at that point and he said if you you know come to LA uh, you can stay at his house so that's what I did um, well let's let's talk about the 1969 album The Turning Point which uh, earned a gold record and is really regarded as, as one of the classics from your catalog um, that album was recorded live at the Fillmore East and, and featured a much more stripped down largely acoustic sound with more kind of folk and, and roots influences and, and no drums um, but your songwriting began to move in some new directions on this record I think of uh, politically charged songs like Laws Must Change or very personal songs such as I'm Gonna Fight For You, JB, which was, I believe, the second song that you had written in tribute to uh, JB Lenore. Um, But probably the best-known song on this record is Room To Move, which addresses the idea of not being smothered in in a romantic relationship. charting album in the U.S. was 1970's USA Union, which featured your your first band of all-American musicians, including Don Sugarcane Harris on violin, uh, former Canned Heat members Harvey Mandel and Larry Taylor on guitar and bass, respectively. Um, and though you still weren't using drums in this era, the vibe kind of changed, uh, with you and Harvey both playing electric guitars and, and Don on electric violin. Uh, but the opening track on that record, Nature's Disappearing, is a, a pointed critique of humanity's destruction of the environment. We're of a generation that may live out our natural time. But as for all our children, born to suffocate a woman's life. Nature's disappearing. Guilty of this massive crime. Sounds very important, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it just makes me think here we are, well, 45 years later. Do you think the environmental situation has improved or gotten worse? Well, it, I don't necessarily think it has improved all that much, but at least there's an awareness of it that's uppermost in people's minds right now. Yeah. Uh, so that's a step forward. Right, right. Well, in 1971, you released a double album, Back to the Roots, which you brought back some Blues Breakers veterans, and it featured tracks such as the anti-drug song Accidental Suicide, where you and Harvey Mandel, Mick Taylor, Eric Clapton, you, you had just this epic blues guitar summit. What prompted you to return to kind of a classic Blues Breakers format at this point? I have no idea, really. You know, <laughs> what I do remember about uh, the Back to the Roots album, it was it was a chance to uh, technolog- 
technology advanced so that you could do a recording of a rhythm section in L.A. Mm. and take the tapes over to London and, and add people on there. So wow. that was quite an adventure to be able to do that. Um, of course, uh, people do that all the time now, but uh, <laughs> back then it was it was quite a novelty. Right. And uh, I, I think I got carried away with it in a lot of places. I mean, you mentioned all three guitar players, all major talents, all playing on the same song. <laughs> um, uh, I thought that was a bit much after the passage of time. <laughs> We're all cluttering each other up. Interesting. So, um, but you, you know what's really great about it is to see how, you know, through arrivals and departures of all these musicians and, you know, frankly, you know, all these egos, that you're, you were still always able to kind of maintain this community where, you know, friendships and collaborations could still happen over time. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why the music sounds so good, because people are having a good time, and mm. uh, the, the, the pressure is off, yeah. and they can just play themselves. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's, it's the creative process in action. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you released a series of albums in the early 70s, including the autobiographical Memories, uh, followed by kind of more of the horn and, and jazz-flavored offerings, such as Jazz Blues Fusion, uh, Moving On, and Ten Years Are Gone. Um, but in 1974, you released your, your final album for the Polydor label, the latest edition. Um, two new guitarists, High Tide Harris and Randy Resnick, were brought in for uh, a little bit more of an R&B-flavored brand of blues. And your writing remained top and timely. Um, Troubled Times, for instance, suggested impeaching Nixon, and you addressed the oil shortage of the day in uh, gasoline blues. Good heavens. <laughs> when you read it like that, it looks like I'm really a really an actor, activist more than the blues. <laughs> like Jane Fonda. Um, as a songwriter, do you think of yourself as a social commentator? Not, 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 first, not the first and foremost. It's some, like I say, it's something that uh, if I'm making an album with uh, 10 or 12 songs on it, uh, I feel beholden to at least uh, have the subject matter of one of the songs being what's going on in the world. So yeah. that's how that comes about. Well, like we've talked about, I mean, uh, it, it has slowed down in more recent years, but particularly back in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of high turnover in your bands. And it reminds me of people like Bill Monroe in the bluegrass world or, or James Brown in the R&B world or Miles Davis in the jazz world. These are all people who are very well-respected, top-notch band leaders, and, and even playing in their bands kind of instantly legitimated up-and-comers in these genres. Um, but also one of the, the reasons for the high turnover was that these were guys who were very meticulous. They had very singular visions. They could be very demanding. Um, do you see any parallels between those sort of figures and your own role as a high-profile band leader who had all kinds of people come in and out of the band over the years? Well, I think every, every band that I've ever had, it's been, been a, a very good, fun thing for them to explore what they wanted to do right. uh, within the within the structure. What what people are referring to the, the my new band, we've already been over five years together, yeah. and it <laughs> it just seems like yesterday when yeah. we got together. We have a great time on the road. It's the best band I've ever had. Wow. You know, keeping uh, you know, in, in that theme of all of the band lineups, I have a question that may be a little hard to answer, but I, you know, the the reason that I'm asking it is I consider it kind of a bar stool question. You got a couple guys sitting in a bar, having their second or third beer, and here's the kind of question that Scott and I might ask ourselves. But 
excluding your current band, let's let's kind of take those guys out of the conversation for just a second. If you could assemble a dream version of kind of those old classic Blues Breakers lineup and take one player and put him in one spot in the band, could you possibly put that dream version together? No. <laughs> How about for that for a long question yeah. and a short answer? No, I don't. I don't think so. I get asked that. Uh, I think the nearest you, you get to that one is on the 70th birthday concert where mm. I had Eric uh, and Mick Taylor both join us for that concert. Yeah. Mm. So that's some, that's an instance of where I, you know, I pick out some dream players from the past yeah. and put them with the current lineup and. Uh, it worked very well yeah. for that concert. Uh, Eric only showed up about half a day before we actually went and did the show. We didn't have any rehearsal or anything. Yeah. He just came on and played. Wow. wow, wow. So I guess I guess to really answer that question, we're just sort of left to our bar stools and we order another beer and we'll we'll debate it on our own. <laughs> Absolutely, you do that. You have plenty to plenty to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Well, between 1975 and 1978, you recorded six albums for ABC, starting with New Year, New Band, New Company. Uh, you wrote all the songs solo, including the single, Step in the Sun. Come on, move yourself, man. Get up out of bed. I need some wood for kindling. Stack up by the shed. Oh, come on, baby, fooling. I'm trying to count the sheep. Please don't let the light in. Went back to sleep. What you want for breakfast? Coffee's in the pot. Come on, hurry down here now, and I'll see what else I got. That song has a strong kind of country flavor to it, but obviously still retains that blues foundation. Um, but it got me wondering, you know, the, the blues is, of course, a somewhat specific format. Do you ever find yourself writing music, maybe just for fun or even just for yourself that is maybe completely country or completely pop or completely something else that just doesn't fit in with your general work as a blues artist? No, no, no. It's never happened before mm-hmm. and probably won't ever. <laughs> but, you know, Step in the Sun was uh, featuring uh, Dee McKinney, who was a country singer, you know, right. that accounts for the flavor of that particular tune. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that was part of that band's sound, uh, that she was uh, um, the second singer on the band. Um, well, the follow-up album, Notice to Appear, was produced by New Orleans legend Alan Toussaint, who wrote seven of the ten songs. And, and Alan is, of course, known for writing classics such as Working in the Coal Mine and, and Southern Nights. How did the two of you end up working together? It was uh, my manager's idea at the time. The manager and the record company thought it would be a good idea to have me and the band go down to New Orleans and record with him mm. um, as a producer. Uh, it turned out to be a, a total disaster for for us because wow. we were used to going into the studio and record and then we're done, you know. Right. But uh, we were all sent down to New Orleans and uh, he did, Alan's somebody we, we couldn't relate to in terms of what we were doing. Huh. He, he would be up in his office and he may come down to the studio or he may not. So we're just hanging around for uh, a few weeks. I forget how long it was, but it felt like forever. Yeah, jeez. And, uh, and then ultimately, when we when we went back to L.A., uh, you know, it turned out that he used other musicians from New Orleans, and 
on some of the tracks and oh, wow. it was all out of my control yeah uh, in my opinion Alan Toussaint is a, a fantastic uh, keyboard player great singer and a great uh, producer of, of, of New Orleans music you know so I have nothing against that but it's just a, it was a very difficult fit for me right. uh, from my background and the way we work so yeah yeah so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the late 70s and early 80s found you releasing a few albums on the DJM label, um, but that was somewhat of a, of a dry spell for you, and, and some of those records did not get released in the U.S. But by the mid-1980s, you put out Behind the Iron Curtain, which was recorded live in Hungary and was the first record to use the, the Blues Breakers name in, in something like 18 years. Um, and it showcased the new lineup with Coco Montoya and Walter Trout on guitars and, and songs like uh, Parchment Farm kind of reignited that, that old energy. When that, that actually kind of raises an interesting question. Do, do you view yourself um, you know, more as, as a live performer or as a person who who records and and you know puts songs out there to be to be consumed by the masses, I mean, it seems like you you kind of really sense that 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 energy and the vitality of your work is is best represented in, in a live environment. Would you say so? Well, the, the work you do on the road is is the foundation for what you put on when you uh, put it put it together in the mm. studio. Mm. Um, you know, we do over a hundred shows every year, and have been doing that for years yeah um so you, you get a chance to do your recording and you mm. you crystallize that and whatever you've been playing constantly uh, that's uh, the material that you put on the album in the studio situation uh, that, that's a cool way to look at it because you you hear so much now of just okay we made a record now we have to tour just to promote the record. <laughs> but other, it, other way around. Yeah, it, it, it's a complete flip that the touring informs the record, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, around 1987 or 88, uh, Chicago Line came out, which was your first U.S.-released studio album in nearly a decade, and, and that led to 1990's A Sense of Place. Um, that album was recorded for Island Records, which kind of marked your return to a, a major label and became your, your first charting album in the U.S., at least, in, in 15 years. Um, by that point in your career, you were nearing 60 years old. You had already become an, an icon of, of blues music. Um, what was it like to start realizing that young musicians were looking up to you in the same way that when you were a young musician, you were looking up to people like Freddie King or Little Walter? Well, it's such a gradual process that you don't really notice, at least I didn't really notice it. Um, but the older you get and the more you plug away at it, you know, I think the more uh, there's a, a special interest in in uh, your career and, and how yeah. it's uh, managed to keep fresh and innovative while still being uh, firmly rooted in the mm -hmm. blues. Well, you know, you, you started to get some really well-deserved recognition and your 1993 album, Wake Up Call, earned you a Grammy nomination. And, uh, you know, that ha had guests like Mavis Staples and, and Mick Taylor came back around. Both of them appeared on the title track. Sleeping out of that, flat out of my back. 
Now, you, you didn't write that song, but it obviously fits your artistic voice. And I'm curious, as a songwriter, how do you decide when to stick with your own material for an album versus you know when you really have found that right outside song? If you hear a good song that you feel an identification with, uh, you use it. Um, yeah. Other times, you might have an idea that you want to put into... Uh, into words and music of some incident or thought in your own life. Mm. So it's a mixture of both things. You, if you put an album together, you draw from all sorts of sources, but they have to be something that you can feel strongly about and, uh, and something that you feel will fit your voice and uh, the, the style of music that you play. Yeah, yeah. Well, throughout the 1990s and 2000s, you've continued to remain prolific, uh, as you say. You've always played many, many shows every year. You've released a ton of albums. Uh, some of the standout albums from that period, I would, would say, would be like Spinning Coin in 1995 and Along for the Ride in 2001, Stories from 2002, and um, and also In the Palace of the King in 2007. And, and that last one is a tribute album to, to Freddie King, who I mentioned a moment ago, um, and features one of your original songs, a sort of a tribute song to Freddie called King of the Kings. Um, as a songwriter who is operating in the blues form, is it more important to you personally to create something fresh or different? Or is it more important for you to act as a preservationist who helps point other people to the blues idiom that has meant so much to you? It's a bit of both, really. Um, it depends on the circumstances and the person. The, uh, the tribute to Freddie King album was uh, was just that, you know. I mean, Freddie was one of the uh, major influences on my singing, and uh, it was a great idea to to do a tribute uh, to to his work. Yeah. Um, I, I I just had a good time playing it, picking out songs that I thought were. Interesting enough for me to 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 perform. Yeah. Well, in 2008, you you retired the name Blues Breakers once again, but fortunately continued to uh, record and continued to record and tour with with a band. And you released a tough album in in 2009, which included the song Tough Times Ahead. And you know, I listened to a song like that with lyrics like "Banks are closing daily and recessions coming back again." Uh, obviously, in in 2009, that was a very timely rumination on the the economic crisis that pretty much captured everyone's attention uh, then. And as a music creator, I really noticed that you seem to keep one foot in the traditional blues of the past, uh, one foot in the the diary, as you call it, of your own life, but always one eye on the headlines of the day. Um, and I'm wondering if that sort of balancing act between the tradition of the blues but the contemporary observation is is that a conscious balancing act on your part or is that something that just kind of flows out of your own musical personality well i think the blues uh, traditionally has been a blues singer singing about the things that are going on in his life mm-hmm. whether they be personal relationships or the, the uh, environment that surrounds him so um, I always try and keep that as a, uh, a guideline for what, what the blues is all about. Yeah. Um, so on the Tough album, that song you mentioned, was uh, yeah, just another observation of what was going on uh, around in the world. Yeah, I've noticed uh, something kind of cool and unique on several of your albums, including the most recent one. The liner notes list what key each song is in. Um, what's the decision behind printing that information? 
think it's important to mention it to people. I get so many comments about it where budding musicians find it very, very helpful mm. to, to to know what key it's in so that they can uh, play along with it. Um, and it's also a bit of uh, bragging on my part that the, <laughs> I get so sick of picking up CDs where uh, if there are 12 songs on the album, there's sometimes... Uh, two or three songs in a row, all in the same key. It all gets too much. It sounds. By the time you finish the album, you, you, you're worn out. Right. There's so much, so little variety uh, that it doesn't keep your brain in active mode. Right. So I always uh, like to to explore different keys because every key uh, has has a different kind of flavor to it, huh. and uh, you know so. It's a, it's a double-edged sword, really. It's a way of playing something in a different key so that it will sound different and uh, have a different mood to it. And it's also helpful for people who want to play along. You know, as a as a multi-instrumentalist who's very, very accomplished, are there any keys at this point that you're like, oh, God, please don't make me play in that key? <laughs> or do you feel completely you know, proficient in, in every key, whatever instrument well, you hand it? Not, not really. Um, you know, I'm the one that, that chooses the keys and and I'll deliberately pick keys that I'm not familiar with or not as uh, technically equipped to play in because whatever I can do in those keys and, uh, will, will come out differently yeah. from what I would play in something I'd be more familiar with. Right. So I set myself these goals and it's just fun to, to you know, test myself and, yeah. and see what I can do with the key that is a bit more difficult. Huh, it's, cool. it's cool to see how you keep challenging yourself, you know, and, and, you know, coming back to your most recent record and another line from find a way to care, you write, looking back where I've been, I'm still following my dream. And here you are still pushing yourself when a lot of folks your age are kind of kicking back, they're enjoying retirement and j just looking toward the past, but you've, you know, you're faced directly in the future, still pushing ahead. What makes you different? What is it that keeps you chasing that musical muse while some other people are just sitting back and, you know, counting their money? Well, you know, I just love music and love playing with the, the, the people that I work with. You know, we have such a, an incredibly creative time and, and the, the best of friends. We just have a great time being on the road together. Yeah. You know, we, we tend to keep going on as long as I've got my good health and energy to yeah. give. Uh, a, a full-on show, you know. I can't imagine uh, going on stage if if I reach an age or condition uh, where I'm not able to uh, leap about and you know <laughs> give it the full full treatment. Uh, yeah. So luckily, I got good health and uh, look forward to many more shows. Well, we thank you so much for spending some time with us today, and thank you for your commitment to the blues and to your own artistry uh, for all these many decades, and you have certainly uh, enriched uh, the world of music with your songs, and we just, uh, again, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. 
and we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.